Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The School of Cleveland Ballet is now accepting auditions for both their trainee and summer intensive programs. Their trainee program is open to male and female dancers ages 18 to 22 and offers opportunities to perform alongside Cleveland Ballet at their home in Playhouse Square and in productions during their regional tours across Northeast Ohio. Cleveland Ballet's home theater complex Playhouse Square is the largest performing arts complex outside of Lincoln Center. School of Cleveland Ballet's summer intensive program is open to dancers ages 8 through 22. The program runs for four weeks where dancers will participate in daily classes in ballet, point, conditioning, modern, jazz, character, Spanish dance, and more. As part of the program, there is housing, food, and transportation available, as well as workshops in nutrition, injury prevention, makeup, and more. Auditions for both programs are by video and do not include any audition fees. Audition by March 31st, 2022 for the trainee program and by March 16th, 2022 for the summer intensive. Visit clevelandballet.org for complete audition and program info or click the links in the description of this episode. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today we are joined by Lynn Garofola, dance historian and author of Lana Dinska, Choreographer of the Modern. Ms. Garofola is Professor Emerita of Dance at Barnard College, Columbia University. A dance historian and critic, she is the author of Diaghilev's Ballet Russe and Legacies of 20th Century Dance, as well as the editor of several books, including The Diaries of Marius Petipa, Andre Levinson on Dance, Jose Limon, an Unfinished Memoir, and The Ballet Russe and Its World. We talk with Lynn about her new biography of Branislav Nijinska. Overshadowed in life and legend by her brother, Václav Nijinsky, Garofola has written the first book to document the full scope of Nijinska's creative work. Nijinska was a remarkable dancer in her own right with the Barbora Technique, as well as a teacher and a prolific choreographer, working with leading figures of 20th century art, music, and ballet, including Stravinsky, Diaghilev, Frederick Ashton, Alicia Markova, and Maria Talchief. La Nijinska, choreographer of the modern, will be released next month wherever books are sold.
Lynn, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, we Obviously, we want to get into your book, but at first, we want to get a little bit of um, personal background. We're just curious um, how you first fell in love with dance and at what point that kind of um, started to uh, dovetail with your interest in writing. Right. Well, I took ballet classes, of course, like so many <laughs> little girls. I had a wonderful Russian teacher who I later found out um, Let's say when I became a scholar, I discovered that my Russian teacher wasn't really Russian, but oh, <laughs> was actually Armenian. But we always called her Russian. And she had a son named Serge, of course. Uh, <laughs> 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 and she used to have, she had these, and then she had a pianist um, who was also Russian, who used to thump away at those bits of Chopin and Debussy, et, et cetera. And that's really where it started. And she remains in her arms. In my mind's eye, remain some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, um, especially at the end, the adagio in the arms. And she had these braids that she would put along the thing. I mean, you know, she was a Russian, except she was mm -hmm. Armenian. <laughs> <laughs> and I've now discovered, thanks to the interne internet, that she was a singer as well. And oh, that wow. they recorded these songs and she came from one of these traditional Armenian sort of singer dancer families. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole history that one day I really want to spend a little time. The next book. Uh, doing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So how long did you study ballet for? Well, I studied for about seven or eight years. I also okay. studied modern and then jazz. Um, my jazz teacher, totally by accident, turned out to be Alvin Ailey. So, <laughs> not <laughs> bad. Kind of amazing. Um, <laughs> a friend of mine who had seen him up at Jacob's Pillow, seen his company at Jacob's Pillow, said, uh -huh. "You know, he's teaching some classes someplace on the east side, not too far from school, from where my school, high school was. So maybe you'd like to come and take class." So I said, "Sure." Uh, and it was the first time I'd ever had a class with drums. It was the first time I had ever had a class, either in modern or ballet, with a man. So, wow. <laughs> and Italy, as you know, was this powerful, very physical man mm -hmm. when he moved. And so that's another really extraordinary, um, you know, memory. And then it, then I was out of New York for a while. And when I came back, I... It was now the 1970s, and I really began going to a lot of performances then. It was still really inexpensive, um, mm -hmm. believe it or not. <laughs> um, you could see Barishnikov at City Center, you know, dancing with Gelsey Kirkland and others, uh, and it wasn't that expensive um, at all. City Center was then really still a popular-priced house. And right. then the kitchen was where the kitchen originally was in Soho. So there was this wonderful um, sense that you could explore all kinds of dance that you could see. And it was along with that that I began writing about dance, not as a historian, mm -hmm. but this kind of led me. I was at this point in graduate school in comparative literature, thinking of doing a, a PhD thesis on the uh, on the picaresque novel in France. England and uh, Spain and a friend of mine sat down with me one day over a drink and said why don't you write something about ballet yeah <laughs> you're, you're always talking about it you're always going to performances 
So that's really how I started. Mm-hmm. And one might say the kernel of that story, of the story that then grew into Diaculus Ballet Russe, which, as you know, is a very complicated book and a long book. Um, We're definitely going to get into that. There's a sure. lot to cover. So. <laughs> we said uh, it was really the meeting of James Joyce and Proust, Marcel Proust, at a party after one of Diaghilev's premieres in Paris in 1922. What were these two people who, of course, I was I was reading and writing about in, in graduate school doing at a Diaghilev cast party? So that was the beginning of, oh. you know, what the story that lies at the beginning. Right. I don't want to get too off course here, but right, there's just a lot to cover. It's interesting. So <laughs> I'm wondering how much your own experience with dance, eight years is a lot of training um, and you have, you know, varied training as well. How much does that affect the work you do as a scholar? Um, those, that training, as well as then observing classes, because mm-hmm. my daughter danced as well, and I observed a lot of classes oh. <laughs> as a ballet mom, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, yeah. and, and rehearsals and other things. Um, but it's, those are things that train, and, and seeing performances, those are things that train your eye. They right. allow you to read criticism. And I've, of course, also, write, I don't write criticism now, but I have written a fair amount of criticism in the past. And I know a number of critics, certainly a number of critics of a certain generation. Mm-hmm. This then means that when I um, pick up a bunch of French newspapers, well, I don't just pick them up, I'm searching for them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I find reviews of something, I understand sometimes where critics are coming from and understand that critics write from their own experience. And I also understand that critics gossip during intervals, which means that sometimes you begin to feel that you're getting into a conversation that isn't really between you and the reader and the work, but that it's between um, it's between and among uh, several um, critics. And that's something I don't think would have come without my understanding of what is going on stage, right. sorting out my own opinion, being an analytical enough to say, this is my own personal opinion. Um, although I can write about something, even you know if I adore it or I don't adore it so much, or if I, you right. know, what that is. And then also that critics are not solely writing, are often writing for each other. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I wonder yeah. if... I would think that that would be such a hard job being a critic. Like, and you, of course, as a former dancer, you understand what went in to all these performances, but you have to air your opinion and you can't like everything. It just is not real. (laughs) You know, there's things that are good and things that are bad. So is that something that you struggled with? Is that one of the reasons why you stopped and looked for a different path within dance writing? I felt at a certain point that, um, The review, which is really what criticism is today, is not sufficient to really write about a performance or a series of performances or a work, that it's very limiting. It's very limiting. Also, it was possible when I started writing 
um, or if you did a feature for Dance Magazine, it could be as much as 2,500 words. Now it's about, by the time I left, it was like 750 words. And a a paragraph was basically one sentence, another sentence, and then a closing sentence. There was never any development. And that's something uh, that changed very you know, changed uh, very dramatically. Also, when you're looking at a performance, and sometimes this is where um, being a dancer is not useful, you're looking at an entire performance, and that performance may only partly be about the dancers. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, think of how much, think, for instance, if one were reviewing, uh, which I didn't, although I've certainly expressed my views to people, um, <laughs> Ratmansky's Sleeping Beauty for um, ABT. Mm-hmm. Right. And you look at that last act and you look at the what to me seems like somewhat outré, an outré take on 18th century costume. Mm-hmm. That completely colors and you might almost say overwhelms the what is going on um, elsewhere. Sure. Right. Or uh certain you know certain other details are not necessarily about are, are not necessarily about the dance per se but how scenography mm-hmm. right. how libretto has been reshaped how the music has been cut and played that in dance you know ballet is very much a composite art it's not just in the studio you know right. it's uh now of course when you see ball- a, a balanchine ballet like the four temperaments it's very, very, um, it's very, very different. Right. But even there, I think some, I think critics are loath to single out a certain person mm-hmm. unless something just seems to be egregious that it's been going on again and again and again and again. Um, very often, then it's really a problem for the artistic director. And I do think uh, uh, there are lots of little buried things, things in reviews where it says, Whoever is rehearsing this should do da 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 da. Yeah, yeah. Now they pretty much know who's rehearsing it, but they're not saying <laughs> that. They're, right. You know. Yeah. Uh, that makes no usually makes no difference whatsoever. Right, right, right. right. Or in yeah. terms of casting, you know, why is this person cast again and again and again in a particular role when it's clear that he or she is just sleeping through it and has been sleeping through it for the last five yeah. years. Um, so that's a little bit different from saying, you know, the planche is not done very well and da 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 da, da. Right. right. I mean, there also can be, and I, uh, there can also be criticisms as there were that when the this new generation of Russian dancers came from the Kirov in the very late 1990s and early 2000s. This was the first generation of the ultra thin dancers with the hypermobile hips who were um, modeled on CBGM by the new director of the Kirov school. And there was a great deal of consternation about that, about the the hyperextensions, about the extreme thinness, the, um, you know, very much, when I was watching the recent events at the Olympics and mm-hmm. it was just thinking that, yeah. yeah, I kept thinking of, you know, Zaharova, yeah. who is still the, um, you know, the, the prima at the, at the Bolshoi. Um, clearly she, she managed to have a career that went on, but she was 
we looked, there was never an arabesque that went to 90 degrees or a little right. above. It just was automatically up and all kinds of other dislocations um, took place. And, right. and, you know, and then you'd begin to see all kinds of other people. Then that became very imitated. And even teachers, you know, when I was teaching at Barnard, I had students who would tell me uh, they were injured. I said, well, why are you injured? Oh, I had a teacher here or here here or there, it was either a Russian teacher or a Chinese teacher. And they basically forced, you know, forced the extensions and forced right. that. And that person didn't, act, you know, was not someone who had been selected out of 10,000 people who right. had right. the hip that you could just force up and. Right, right, right. Sure. It's, it's interesting because it reminds me so much of, I mean, I'm very New York City ballet centric in my views or like what I'm talk about certainly with my friends and this is like very much a discussion that's been going on um since Suzanne Farrell about her impact and the way people have become an imitation of that the original Suzanne Farrell imitations and like down the line how that looks you know 20 years later but you can trace it back to her but then when you go back and look at the source material well I love Suzanne personally but okay. someone like Sylvie who might have been alarming in her time you can go back and look at her do Grandpa Classique and she will do a 90 degree arabesque, you know? Yes. It, it's not yeah. all, it becomes more and more. Mm -hmm. And it becomes how people are coached and what's expected. Uh, Sylvie Guillem did all kinds of things um, that were, I think, very much an extension of her personality. She was also encouraged to do certain things. And in the case of Zaharova and Vishneva and that initial group of Kirov dancers, they were trained to do that. In other words, precisely like these new figure skatings, who, skaters who were trained to do those very high extensions, the, um, you know, very, very thin and, and at the same, you know, and at the same time to do these remarkable turns. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. But yeah. next year, believe me, next time the Olympics come around, believe me, we're going to see a lot more quads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah oh for gosh. sure, for sure. It's but so for, yeah. I, there are so many different threads we can go on here, and I want to I want to go back to you in one second. But I did think that this was really an interesting point about dance criticism that you were making about how it's just been cut back and back and back because the you know Denby and Croce writings are so fascinating and give you such an insight to it. But like, I wonder if this era that we're seeing now, where we don't have the that in depth analysis, unless I mean, some people are finding um, ways, you know, the internet, fine, but you don't have, uh, you don't have access to a larger crowd is if you're doing like, you know, where you were saying like 2,500 words in the New Yorker, that doesn't right. happen anymore. Well, it might happen in the New Yorker, theoretically. Sure. <laughs> um, it, um, but the New Yorker it stands a little bit against the trend, although certainly recent reviewers recent critics for the New Yorker have not seized on the possibilities the way someone like Arlene Croce did for so many years. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I, I do think there are people writing on the internet, such as Marina Haas, who's made a space for herself right. um, online. I'm not sure if she ever gets paid for that, um, but she does that, you know, to, you know, because she wants to write criticism. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, she also has done, and I think this is interesting, that uh, she's also done a fair amount of writing that's lengthier, but it's in the form of interviews. 
interviews with um, Ratmansky, for instance, or interviews right. in, interviews with a whole load of people. And very often interviews can get at things that the actual review can't get at. They're, they sure. can be very much complementary um, forms of writing. Mm-hmm. And I think that is you know, essential. But the problem is Marina does have readers, but they're a self-selected group of readers. Whereas if she were writing, I don't know if the Times, if the New York Times, for which she sometimes writes, actually had reviews that um, were longer than sort of long captions, then she'd be able to, I think, do more. Yeah. I mean, when yeah. you think of what the Village Voice used to have, it used to have Deborah Jowett having a whole page. Then it had all kinds of other mm-hmm. stringers who would have shorter reviews. But you ended up getting a sense of a kind of bouquet right. of uh-huh. what was going on, even if you hadn't gone to most of those. Right. You know, it's interesting that you say that because as you're talking about this, I'm thinking how this relates to your um, dance history writings. Because my, I imagine that you probably refer would go back and refer to a lot of these sorts of articles that you found throughout your time. So maybe we can start to transfer into that and how you used um, some of these articles, and then what that means maybe for future dance historians that there isn't that same kind of context. Like, yes, we'll have videos, but. How how is that going to be different, you know, moving forward? It will it will be different, but I think there is writing going on, but it's in different places. Right. And how we archive that is going to be important for you know managing to um keep these things. But certainly I in in my book about Nijinska, which is um, I still haven't seen yet. It's supposed to arrive any day. <laughs> oh, <yay. laughs> Very exciting. It's like, I want to hold it. When is um, it coming out just before we? Uh, well, first it was going to be March 1st. First it was going to be in February. Then it was uh-huh. going to be March 1st. Now they're saying March 10th. Okay. Very soon. Stay these... tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. It was, okay. It's being produced in India. So um, I think there are a number of possible obstacles you know that we've all read about right that are now affecting my book um but in this book i was writing about a choreographer who was react who was active for 50 years mm-hmm. maybe even more uh choreographing restaging uh staging ballets by other people doing opera ballets in other words choreography was really the center of her life Teaching was very important. It was tied to her um, to her ideas of choreography, but nevertheless, the choreography was really the center. Right. But most, the vast majority of her works have disappeared. Mm-hmm. So, what does that do? And so, this is where I r- relied a great deal on reviews. Um, she herself kept scrapbooks with a lot of reviews, but at a certain point, I couldn't make that many trips to Washington. And then once the pandemic hit, I just, I couldn't even do photo research there. I was right. getting photos for the book from writing to St. Petersburg to Moscow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was the craziest, uh, crazy. Wow. Right. Uh, but the, um, but I also went to a great deal of trouble to try to find all of her writings, mm-hmm. not all of which, um, there are many writings of hers, diaries, 
articles that she rewrote, even had translated, but never published. So there's a lot of material, um, but very often it doesn't have direct bearing on her choreography. So in her diaries, it'll be just infuriating sometimes. She's choreographing a bunch of things. Like, oh, during the whole period, she's choreographing her greatest ballets, Les Nos and Les Biches, Le Tremble for uh, Diaghilev. She stops writing in her diary altogether. I can understand it. She was too busy. And when she wasn't busy, she spent some time with her children, who were mostly brought up by her mother, and, you know, soaking her feet and going to bed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but then... Um, but later on, sometimes she would be writing about all kinds of other things, her creativity, her adoration for Shaliapin, would he come and see her works, um, her misery, her this or that. And you're saying, but just write about the ballets a little bit. <laughs> Tell us, when please. did you get well, this far from Stravinsky? <laughs> right, right. Okay, but I am curious, though. Um, like she's uh, unveiling this like well of personal emotions uh -huh. that um, you said she's you. I think you said in the book that she's um, that she was reluctant to give interviews that were super in depth or she was yes. wary of yes. them. So then you have that personality that's like a little bit more that is more reserved, but beneath that is just this simmering. Like I love this idea of her. I mean, it's just obviously it's deeply romantic that she's just in love with you know the world's greatest opera star, and that's like a driving force in her life in some way. In but she would of course way. never have said that in an interview. <laughs> of course not. She was <laughs> actually embarrassed by it. Right. Um, and. She did tell one woman who uh, was a very sophisticated woman who basically said, well, doll, you get yourself dolled up and try to seduce her. And of course, <laughs> she was shocked by that. She never would even consider doing anything like that. But right. this also contrasted with the... Um, the way she behaved in the studio. She, be, she was really tough. Uh, dancers would complain that she wouldn't let them sit around and read newspapers and uh, darn their point shoes when they were they weren't called. So uh, she said, "I want you to pay attention. I want you to listen. If you have no respect for me, da 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 da." Respect was very very important to her. I think because of the challenges to her authority that she right. initially experienced in the Diaghilev company, where Diaghilev would mostly back her up, but not always. And remember, many of the dancers she was um, in charge of, um, that she was choreographing for, were people she'd been in school with since right. Right. Um, she was eight and nine years old. Mm -hmm. So this means completely redefining your relationship um, sure. right. with someone. And there had been this these years when she had been separated, she had been in Russia, then the revolution, she stayed in Russia. She had her school, she had begun to question everything. She became friends with visual artists and theater directors who were considered part of the avant-garde. She comes back to the Diaghilev company. Not only is he deciding to produce Sleeping Beauty, which to her was, you know, outlandish. <laughs> Last she had heard he was doing the right of spring. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but also many of the dancers looked at her peculiarly. One, because um, this excitement for the new, they just wanted to be dancers. They didn't question what they were doing. They just wanted to be dancers, be paid, have better roles, look nice in their costumes, etc. The other thing she encountered when she returned from Russia 
is the fact that in that interim, her brother had gone crazy. And there were dancers in the Diaghilev company in 1921-22 who had traveled in the United States on those tours with Nijinsky when some of his behavior had become more and more erratic. So, and then ultimately they began telling her some of their stories about that. Hmm. But they were looking at her also like, is she crazy like her brother? You know, because they would have known that the oldest brother who died during the revolution was died in a um, in a mental facility. They would have known. Uh, and then the second brother, what about her? You know, um, yeah. this would have been it. And of course, Nijinska, uh, I mean, jumping ahead now, Nijinska discovers in 1935, after this automobile accident, that when her husband, her, her husband was driving, her son was killed and her daughter was seriously injured. She then finds a little notebook which says uh, to be given to Madame Nijinska, my mother, after my death. And basically, it was something he had written the previous three, four months or even less, um, talking about these pains that he has in his head. He can barely um, he, he can barely uh, endure them. He wants to go away to a sanatorium, he, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This was her husband, so, now. No, this is her son. Oh, oh her son. Oh, wow. Yes. Wow. So it was something, it was in her genes, probably in her Must mother's genes. Right. And yeah. it went to the two brothers, it skipped her, and then it went to the, um, it went to the son. Hmm. So it's one of these really terrifying stories. And I'm sure during her, you know, during her life when she was younger, before she discovered this with her son, I'm sure there were times she wondered, you know, why the two brothers and not me, you know, mm -hmm. sure. or did, or had she felt the pull, you almost think, but, but then was able to get back to life. Can we talk for a second about um, the impact that Nijinsky, both his fame and then his mental deterioration had on Nijinska's work. Um, just thinking about the fame component of it, you know, you just, um, I, I think a lot of dancers, if you asked today, well, who's Nijinska? Well, she's Nijinsky's sister. And I, I guess yes. maybe she choreographed some things. Even when I was sending Rebecca a text about this, I, I laughed because Nijinska auto-corrected to Nijinsky. They mm -hmm. literally, they, they'll give you Nijinsky. Yes, yes. But <laughs> <laughs> it's taken my fingers a long time to get away from that. And moreover, now I write Nijinsky. I'm thinking Nijinsky and I, my fingers are writing Nijinska, but that's taken a lot of time. <laughs> right. But you're absolutely right. And I believe that's why she wrote early memoirs the way she did. Mm -hmm. um, originally, the book, and it was quite different from the final form that it took in English, but originally it was called My Brother Vaslav Nijinsky or My Brother Vatsa. In other words, it was, she realized, and this I think was a brilliant, observation on her part, that she could ensure her own um, legacy through him. So the right. book is a biography of mm. the it's a biography of the two of them, but the focus is on is on him. And of course, it ends early memoirs, it ends when she's basically 25 years old. That mm -hmm. is before she really started before she starts choreographing. 
Um, originally, she had planned to do a whole. Uh, I found a an outline a, an outline for a book that was about her life that she had written in 1935, and it was to go up to 1935, mm-hmm. and so it was to be about her entire life. But then later on, I think, as you might say, the juggernaut of Nijinsky's fame became uh, such, and I can talk about some of the different stages of that. Mm-hmm. Um, she, in a sense, almost realized that there was no point in telling her own story. It had to be linked um, to him to him in mm-hmm. a really deep, serious way. Uh, during the Diaghilev period, there were, of course, people who um, knew about um, Nijinsky's condition. At a certain point, uh, Ramala, Nijinsky's wife, moved um, him to Paris uh, he was no longer in a hospital, but there was 24-hour nursing, as a male nurse, 24 hours a day. And Nijinska would visit him. And and there were a few times in the 1920s when Ramallah would bring him to see rehearsals um, at, uh, at the Ballet Russe, including perhaps the last time in the late 20s when uh, they were d- dancing Petrushka and Karsavina, his ballerina, was there in costume. And he basically just didn't, if he recognized anyone, he gave no um, indication of it. So it was very tragic. But the one who then really, one might say, sensationalized his story, both as the mad genius, as well as the um, victim of Diaghilev's Svengali-like machinations, Mm -hmm. was his wife, Romola. First in her biography, which was enormously popular and was basically written by Lincoln Kirstein with, um, yes, wow. with um, uh, a couple of other, with um, Arnold Haskell's, some editing by Ar- Arnold Haskell. Mm-hmm. And then when she released the, um, the di- when she did her edited the diary, Nijinsky's diary, and did it in a very particular way. And once again, emphasizing that Diaghilev had been so terrible to him and, of course, that he was a mad genius. And Nijinska was in, she does talk about this in her, in her diaries. She was very distressed by um, this, the depiction of Diaghilev in Romola's readings because she, you know, she was like Diaghilev's daughter. Diaghilev was immensely kind to the family. He was immensely kind to Nijinsky. He also did things for Nijinsky that no one in his right mind would ever do for an, a, a, a fledgling choreographer, like mm-hmm. allow them to choreograph the Rite of Spring, right. which was <laughs> the most complicated music that anyone had ever heard in 1913. Mm-hmm. Right. And hours and hours of rehearsal were allotted to this. He hired Marie Rambert to help him. Um, So this thing, you know, this went on and on. And she felt that, um, you know, Diagula was truly um, uh, treated very, very badly, even though she herself had problems with Diagula, you know, who could Mm be um, a little bit of a, you know, could act like a mafioso and wanted to control everything and blah, 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 blah. But she respected him. I mean, she once said in one of her diary entries that 
Diaghilev and the stage director, Max Reinhardt, were the two people who were most totally um, committed to theater, who were the Mm -hmm. most totally theatrical people she knew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What what were some of her first opportunities with Diaghilev then? And like that colored this sort of very, um, I guess, well, mixed uh, view of him eventually once he started to kind of come into her life and control more. But what were some of the the major breakthroughs that she had under Diaghilev? Well, I think the first major breakthrough was that with Diaghilev, this is now before World War I, she was dancing mainly folkine ballets. Mm -hmm. And for her, these represented a tremendous departure and a tremendous challenge for someone who had been uh, trained in the old Mariinsky style. Um, And nowadays, when when people study ballet and start dancing, they're, they're dancing all kinds of things. Parallel. Right. Yeah, of course, everyone dances parallel. Sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't even think about it. Yeah. Um, but uh, there, it was a very, very strict, very, very conventional uh, training. And it was aimed at uh, producing dancers who could, who could um, dance the ballets of Marius Petipa. That was mm-hmm. the or other works right. along those lines in the right. period repertory. Uh, dancers were corseted. There was very little upper body movement. Um, the way movements were performed, be it arm gestures, be it leg gestures, were very, very self-contained, very, very traditional. And suddenly with Fokine, things were much wilder, if you will, mm-hmm. right, and right. much freer. And the tech, you know, technique was much less, was much less, technique in itself was much less important, Mm -hmm. even though they were all taking with Diaghilev, there wasn't a day when the dancers weren't required to take a ballet class. Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, that was written into the contract. You, if you don't go to ballet class, you get fined. (laughs) Oh, wow. I mean, they literally had fines. You know, if you come late to rehearsal, fine. If you miss a performance, fine. But this business of enforcing the discipline Mm -hmm. of class um, and of rehearsals was one of the secrets of the Diaghilev company. The other thing she began to see, because she was a very observant young woman, was the way Diaghilev was using music, that he was beginning to investigate new music. I mean, remember, the se- his second season, he commissioned Stravinsky, who had yet to do a ballet, to do uh, Firebird. And then the next year, Petrushka, and then the year after, uh, two years after that, uh, The Rite of Spring. This is an entire uh, revolution in ballet music. Mm-hmm. And the choreography is beginning to follow that. She right. was also deeply impressed with um, uh, her brother's efforts to choreograph um, Afternoon of a Fawn. The basic idea, I believe, was came from Diaghilev and Boxed, as well as a suggestion of using Debussy's music. Mm-hmm. But, but when it came to thinking of a new style of body movement, this was something that was his own, and, ve- and where he worked very, very closely uh, with Nijinska. In fact, she was the clay on which he initially began choreographing, or you might say sketching movement. Right. So 
this for her, I think, was almost a practicum in how you have to begin to think about choreography. Right. And how it's not just a matter of steps, but it's also a matter in how you treat um, and how you think about the body and how mm. movement doesn't have to look like movement in the in the classroom. So right. you mentioned earlier that we her many of her works are gone. They've been lost mm-hmm. and we just have some of her writings to refer to. What indication do we have about her style? Here you're talking about how she was influenced, how she's seen choreography change. What did her unique style look like? Do we have any indication of that? Well, we do have a few ballets that are extant. Mm-hmm. And happily, there are two important ones. Mm-hmm. One is Les Nos, which mm-hmm. the Royal Ballet brought back and uh, in 1966 and is kept in repertory ever since. It had it notated, renotated, and filmed so that there is it, there's a real history record for that. And they keep performing it. Right. Um, the other one was Les Biches, which once again, uh, the Royal Ballet uh, brought her over to revive in the 1960s. And that, too, ensured it um, a place uh, in the repertory. Um, the Oakland Ballet did a couple of other ballets of hers because her daughter lived in Southern California. And there, um, I would say they're not quite as... Uh, authentic, if you will, because right. uh, Nijinska herself wasn't there and Irina Nijinska wasn't involved in the choreography of uh, Le Tremble, for instance. Mm-hmm. Most of that was brought back by someone who was um, um, a researcher and a dance teacher at UC Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another one, which was brought back partly from memory, um, but I think that was a, I still think there's another ballet that they can bring pieces back from oh. Chopin Concerto, which she first did in 1937 for the, um, for the, uh, Polish ballet. Mm-hmm. And then in an, a work that in certain ways, I mean, I have seen some, there, there are some bits of, um, film, but also there are, there's some photography, there's a fair amount of photography. It was then, and Nijinska revived it a number of times. And then the last revival was in the late 1960s. And there are still a number of dancers around from that production. Right. And I know in the 1990s, they still felt they could revive it. And I was just talking to Linda Murray from the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, the Dance Division, and asking her, and she th- thought maybe there could be some way of, I don't know, some kind of group to try to, yeah. right. you know, bring some of that um, back. There was an attempt at Goucher College, but it was somewhat misguided mm-hmm. um, for a number of reasons. Um, yeah. But I still think a little bit of that uh, can be brought back, but a, ho- a whole lot of other ballets now. That's so that's mean. where the critics were important. Right, right. right. <laughs> Yeah. Because they would come out and describe something. And there was one critic writing about one of her, Pol- the, the ballet she did for the Polish ballet, saying uh, this was about a kind of 16th, 17th century uh, Faustian tale. And there were these market scenes with, that were apparently unbelievably complex in terms of their group dynamics and in the action that was, he said, I've gone back again and again and again 
to see this and to understand how she brings through these threads of the devils and these other things. And this was something that, again, came up in a number of the reviews. But that one, I mean, the way he kept saying, I went back again and again and again to try to capture it all, to remember it all. Um, Then, uh, you know, there then there are certain ballets, um, again, with bits of film, but not it's hard to really see what is particular to her mm-hmm. uh, abt's first female garde was hers and they kept that in repertory with a few you know with some uh revisions well through the you know almost up to the 1960s right. but no one thinks that she's the one um who did the and unfortunately the film footage was not very good sure right yeah see that's that's what interests me because obviously Nijinska had this um very broad um knowledge you know Lafie certainly doesn't look anything like Lenos so I would be so curious to see like Mm -hmm. that um expressly what we view as classical style um of Nijinska whereas like Lenos I I actually danced Lenos with in Boston Ballet uh-huh. Um, and it just felt. I think I might like, have seen you. I think I went up to see you. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, but it just felt so wild. Like it just right. feels. It feels like revolutionary. It, it feels yes. like you. You know, your your hair is sticking up on you know on end, and it it's um very different from what I would imagine you feel watching Nijinska's La, La Fille. <laughs> you know. Her last original ballet was a restaging of the Sleeping Beauty for the Marquis de Cuevas Company. And she worked quite a bit with the, the Cuevas Company and loved Rosella Hightower. She and Rosella Hightower had this really close relationship. I call Hightower one of um, Nijinska's ballerina muses. Mm-hmm. Alicia Markova was another one. Um, Ranova was another one. Um, Maria Tolchief was a very young version of one. And then the uh, and then there was um, um, Rosella Hightower. And Rosella was a very strong dancer. But she as she began working with Nijinska, she became more and more, she became more and more virtuosic, uh, Nijinska. And she Rose, there's a long interview by Elizabeth Kendall with uh, Rosella at the um, dance division of NYPL. And she talks about their relationship and she'd say, oh, I, there's no way I can do that. And she and would say, well, just try, try. Mm-hmm. And that she had ways of um, suggesting how to turn, doing things that she thought were impossible because she kept emphasizing the rhythm of them the rhythm in the right. terms. It was really interesting. And I had a num- I've interviewed a couple of people, not that huge number, but some people who uh, wrote to me, uh, either wrote to me or told me that Nijinska helped them enormously with their pirouettes. And that one dancer even said, she would just touch me and I'd do a double pirouette. I could never do double pirouettes. Now, this is magic. <laughs> <laughs> But I've heard something similar from enough enough people to know that there was something to the way she maybe shifted the body slightly or mm. holding a, a shoulder back or pushing a shoulder forward. I I don't know. Another part of her, there were a couple of things in her teaching that were pretty strong. She emphasized the, the strength of the abdominals. Mm. Again, this is something 
we perhaps know more from Pilates and from other things that are done now. But she, for her, she didn't do Pilates. It was just no. plain <laughs> abdominal strength. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and there is a little piece of footage on YouTube of Rosella doing her variation, Nijinska's variation in the vision scene from the Sleeping Beauty. And it's filled with all kinds of turns. She just seems to float around, float around, and then the leg is out here, and then it's float. Uh. So I think it's worth watch it. You might want to watch that. I'm going to find oh, that. For sure. You know what I wonder while you're talking about um, her corrections with turns, are these mostly female dancers on point? Like, I wonder, is that something that she just understood? Like we have these conversations about male choreographers, maybe not having that understanding in the same way. So I wonder right. about that. She was able to teach men as well as women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think she she believed in everyone jumping. So one of her early uh, students uh, was Anton Dolan, whom she claim, he, he claims that she taught him about breath and how to jump that way. Another one of her early students was, um, was Allegra Kent, you know, who was one of the amazing jumpers and turners. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maria Tallchief said, I learned to jump and turn. I knew everything before I got to Balanchine, except he really worked her feet. That yeah. was one <laughs> thing that, that she said, uh, this is Tallchief, um, Madame had beautiful feet, but um, the, impl- the implication being that she didn't and that <laughs> she didn't really work them. On the other hand, she felt if you could do um, all the jumping and the turning, you wouldn't need to work that much on point on the on the feet. It w- they would already be taken care of. Now she did offer point classes in her school, mm-hmm. and so women did take point classes. Right. But was not he? D- she did not develop that the way Balanchine did. That was right. clear. So we're getting an idea of Nijinska's influence as a teacher. But mm-hmm. I'm curious um, if we can talk a little bit about. Uh, direct influence choreographically. I can think of, um, I mean, this is just merely one image in Lenos, but Ramansky and Justin Peck, both within the past 10 years, have used the sort of stacked heads image. Yes. Um, but like, are there other, other examples? Um, oh, Balanchine. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, so that actually, that's what we wanted to get to. Alistair McCauley, our mutual friend, was saying that Balanchine may have been influenced by Nijinska and not crediting her. Surprise. <laughs> there's a photo, there's a photo from his original Mozartiana, which he did in 1932. And there were the stacked heads. I saw it on the cover of Ballet Review. I remember one time said, that's Nijinska. That's um, funny. Yes, it is very, very funny. Um, I think it's very interesting that he never made any reference to Lenos. Mm. Uh, when he did his Stravinsky festival, there was no Lenos, there was no Rite of Spring. Um, not even, you know, not even a little bit of something rather that would sort of honor it as being right. part of this extraordinary output um, by Stravinsky at, at a festival meant to honor um, his oeuvre. So I, I, I think he must have recognized that Nijinska was someone who. Uh, had the same passion for choreography that he did. I think, uh, and that she was serious about this. 
mm-hmm. that when she's whether you disliked what she was doing or not, that she was serious. And moreover, that uh, certain works like Lenos and like Les Biches and even Tremble were considered enormously popular at a time, this is now in the 20s, when his ballets were by and large dismissed. Right. I mean, there was interest, of course, in um, Apollo, although Apollo, as it looked then, looked, was nothing like Apollo now. Um, right. Prodigal Son was closer. And actually, Prodigal Son was, I think, a turning point uh, for Balanchine. Right. But it's also clear that in the 1930s, Nijinska began, began creating a series of ballets that were not only plotless, as was Les Nos, and to some extent, and Les Biches, which was a situation, it sort of, it had characters, but it wasn't a plot where one mm-hmm. thing leads to another, to another. Um, uh, it, it, and she was doing things that were almost, uh, that were virtually plot, that were virtually right. plotless, virtually abstract. Mm-hmm. And this was something I think that Balanchine, you know, had to have recognized as, something serious right i uh for instance he did a she did a bach ballet um she had had the idea of doing a bach ballet back in kia but never did it and then she worked on it and around 1930 um came up with a a resolution there, there were enormous controversies about it with some critics saying this is terrible um it was it was really just a series of movements to um, Bach music, mm-hmm. uh, music from the Brandenburg Concertos, which had been um, excerpted, excerpted and woven together. Mm-hmm. And she was, um, uh, I mean, vilified by some people. Other people said it was like being in church uh, <laughs> and that this was really a major step forward in, ter- in terms of choreography you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, Balanchine, if he had ne- may never have seen this, but he had to have known about it. They were, right. it was a very small world of emigre ballet in Paris. People right. were dancing for different, you know, people were bouncing around to the different groups. Some of her dancers danced with him, his dancers danced with her. So it was not as though they didn't know anything. Um, right. I, when he, uh, I do find it interesting, and this would be something went the other way. She happened to be in New York in 1935 when the, uh, the American Ballet gave its first season. And of course, Serenade was on it. The music right. was by Tchaikovsky. And when Nijinska does Chopin Concerto, of course, it's to Chopin. Um, she's also, um, there are certain things, this almost kind of art deco quality. Mm-hmm. that I think was sort of a trace or an echo from the earlier serenade. But right. I've never read anyone else saying that. Say that. But to me, there seems to be right. some yeah. kind of like echo conversation. Right. Yeah. Uh, she was also annoyed, uh, and she became very annoyed with Balanchine. She was the one who first did Baiser de la Fée for the Ida Rubinstein Company. And then she revived it for um, and restaged it in Buenos Aires for the Teatro Colón when she reconceived 
the fairy, the role of the fairy, which had been Ida Rubinstein. So she, there were actually two ballerinas, real ballerinas right. in the, um, in the role, uh, in the ballet. And then when she came to the U S she was desperate to revive the ballet, but she didn't have any sets and costumes and no, and none of these companies, either ballet theater or ballet Russe de Monte Carlo wanted to invest the money in the stuff, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So that was the end of that ballet. And then, of course, when Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo stages Bezet, they use the Balanchine version because uh, Kirstein still had it in storage. <laughs> the sets right, right. That ballet, I mean, that ballet just can't catch a break. I would love to see both versions. I mean, we have the Balanchine's like, Divertimento yes. from, but like, I just, we we did the Romanski in Miami City Ballet. And it's just such beautiful music. And yes, to the imagine these two geniuses taking it on, like, I, I just, I wish we had those. You know, yeah. it was very interesting in 1947 when Balanchine was at the Paris Opera. Uh, he staged Le Baiser de la Fée there. And it was his, basically the version that he had done, you know, with a few minor changes, of course, right. um, in New York in the late 1930s. And there were critics writing who had been writing since the 1920s and remembered Nijinska's version for uh, Ida Rubinstein and were saying, were really commenting upon the strength of the of Nijinska's village scene, um, hmm. which apparently was wonderful from, and saying, oh, this is not a patch on what she had done. So, oh, interesting. Right. Yeah. You, you've said that, that Najinska really hasn't gotten her due from critics, from audiences, maybe even from dancers. Why do you think that is? And was that part of your inspiration behind tackling this book? Well, it was certainly one of my inspirations, you know, who is Shakespeare's sister? And I did think at some point to use Shakespeare's sister or the sister thing in the title. And many people say, no, 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 (laughs) go beyond that. Um, But um, I'll give you one example of a very influential book where she is there and she's not there. Um, This was a book that uh, was published by Arnold Haskell in the 1930s. Haskell was probably the the preeminent ballet writer of the period, enormously popular. He was a critic, but he produced book after book after book. And they remained in in print for years. So one book was called Balletomania. and And it's basically to explain ballet to people, to the newcomers, to the ballet audience. And so he talks about the Diaghilev era choreographers. There's a long section by Nijinsky, which is really just Haskell writing um, because Nijinsky could no longer sit for an interview and others. But there's no section on on Nijinska. Hmm. Later, there's something, a little something about it. um, And what a fine teacher she is of men. Why a fine teacher of men? Because Haskell knew uh, um, Anton Dolan. Dolan was right. very, very fond of Nijinska and they corresponded throughout their life. It's a big fat folder of letters from him mm-hmm. to her. Um, but um, so you begin to see how she's written out because she had not, she was based in France at that point. There's a little rep- uh, reprieve from this. Um, 
1936, she's around in 1935 to do something for de Basile, for the de Basile company. She um, works with the Mark of a Dolan company. And that makes um, a lot of people look up. After all, Alicia Markova was the preeminent um, British ballerina of the 1930s. She could do anything. She came from the Ballet Russe. And Nijinska did a great deal of work with her. She coached her in things like Giselle and Swan Lake. This was the second act. She coached, she set, she adapted another one of her um, Ida Rubinstein works for her and uh, you know, obviously transformed it because Markova was a real ballerina, right. unlike Rubinstein. And critics loved it. People, uh, critics like Haskell were writing, oh, she's really acquired a style. She is now deeply dramatic. She's emotional. It's uh, it's wonderful. This is a new Alicia Markova. Mm -hmm. And Markova herself, you know, would always work whenever she could, would choose to work with uh, Nijinska. But then Nijinska joins another company as she goes to work for the Polish Ballet. Meanwhile, Markova and Dolan decide to join the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, and there goes their repertory. So mm -hmm. it's these kinds of things that, um, but meanwhile, there was a certain amount of interesting stuff that was published about Nijinska right in that kind of little gap there when she's right. there. And that also makes you, one also makes you realize to what extent being part of the Anglo-American dance writing legacy right. was important to guarantee a position for yourself in what you might call the larger canon. Hmm. Right. And with Nijinska floating around, you know, Buenos Aires, forget Buenos Aires. The Polish ballet, forget that. They did perform a little bit around, but that was it. And then, of course, all the stuff that was used in the ballet was destroyed during World War II with all the bombing. Right. So <laughs> on and on and on wow. with the misfortunes of a life of displacements. Right. That I mean, we it, Nijinska dramatizes it, but there are numerous, numerous um, people who can you know, who suffered this in right. you know, in far worse ways. Right. But this was a fact of life. All the material that she had accumulated for her own company during the 1930s, sets and costumes um, for numerous, you know, for several ballets that she had produced for her own company, they she had put them in a warehouse in 1939 when she left for the United States. And they were... Uh, they were confiscated by the Germans because who knows who she was and she was Polish. She could have been Jewish. Da, da, da. And when she went back after the war, they just, they had completely disappeared. She was never able to get a penny for them. Uh, I mean, uh, as I say, there are a series of historical things mm -hmm. in her life that intruded upon her ability to uh, work as more, generally um and more broadly as she put it right. what a shame yeah. i mean we just don't even consider those things i right yeah, yeah for sure so we have to think putting in context historical context like even just within the past 10 years there are these larger discussions about why 
like what 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 is the ballet world doing about including women in the choreographic aspects you know ballet certainly you know famously george balanchine put women on a pedestal but that's not you know that's not real equality or equity either um so particularly for female choreographers they you know in the past 10 years there's been a big push to finally um provide some equality there but Nijinska's doing this you know a hundred years ago what what kind of um how did Nijinska really lead the way for women that are choreographing today in ways they might not even realize I think Nijinska led the way in in the sense of never giving up despite uh slaps in the face I mean not literal slaps in the face but uh, uh metaphoric ones despite earning less far less than someone like Leonid Massine, although she right. might have done more, despite um, having to prove herself again and again, and despite the um, fact that people always talk about her being difficult, although mm-hmm. God knows there were numerous choreographers like Anthony Tudor, Jerome Robbins, who were extraordinarily difficult in right. their um, in their era, but she's the one who's singled out, I think, because she was female, because she was not, quote, attractive. I think, however, ballet has to get away from the notion that the only reason to hire a woman in a ballet company is because she is um, good for the court of ballet, mm-hmm. uh, which is because not all men are hired by a company from the school because they are good for the corps de ballet, especially if they've revealed some kind of choreographic talent. If they've revealed some kind of choreographic talent, they will be allowed to develop that, uh, whereas, or encouraged to develop that, uh, whereas the women are expected really to keep, you know, in the corps, and the female core has a great deal more to do than the male core in most um, traditional ballet companies, whether they're balancing oriented or more classically oriented. And uh, I think that is one of the uh, things that um, is one of the major things that one has to really go beyond. I, another thing is to, Go beyond the the notion. I'm not quite sure how this will work out. There are many people who have um, studied ballet at the college level Mm -hmm. who have perhaps done a fair amount of choreography uh, or have been encouraged to do choreography, but are unhirable by the the, uh, more elite um, ballet companies. Mm -hmm. And... Perhaps they could be integrated if they really do show choreographic talent within the ballet idiom. Right. That they could be um, hired where they perform, do some performance. There's always some kind of roles that they can do. Sure. And then also um, be encouraged to work to do choreography. Um, There is so much emphasis on the female, on female beauty, on um, that the core being not a stepping stone to choreography, but the female core being a stepping stone toward the principled, principled right. dancer. Um, right, right. That's so true. It's an interesting perspective. And so that is something, I don't know how that is going to change, but mm-hmm. I think something like that would have to change. Right. The other thing is not just to isolate 
women on this is our female choreographic um, evening. Right. So we do that and then we repeat it three times and maybe we repeat it the next season three times and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, having some choreography by women and then trying to incorporate in, incorporate it into the repertory by pairing it with different works, different right. kinds of works. So it begins to take on other dimensions and also that the dancers become more adept at it. They begin to lend it their personalities and, you know, make it their own and make it the company's. Um, Valentin used to say about certain ballets that the audience hated that he was just programming them and he'd program them and program them in different places until they finally got used to that. That's funny. (laughs) Yeah. This is, you know, first of all, you know, I'm talking about um, works that are pretty good, not necessarily works that are terrible. Right, right, right. (laughs) Quietly dropped. Sure. But, you know, a lot of choreography is mediocre it's in the it's middling right. it's middling. it's not in the great mm-hmm. category and it might be in the middling and it, I feel and this will sound kind of strange I feel that women as much as men have the right to be middling <laughs> in <laughs> other words not everything that women um do uh, that women may do has to be great Yes, and that expectation of greatness is going to be disappointed because most things that you produce aren't great. Mm -hmm. But to give women the opportunity also to form a relationship with a company, so that they get to know the dancers, so that they know what their strengths, what their weaknesses were. Some of Christopher Wielden's early ballets were wonderful at City Ballet precisely because he knew the dancers and he revealed yeah. aspects of their personality that I, for one, was stunned to see as an audience. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. So true. No, it's so true. I mean, it, when you, you couldn't count on, I don't know, all your fingers and toes, the number of mediocre works we've seen by men. So... <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's like new choreography within the past 10 years, because like with yeah. new choreography, it's just about the process and, you know, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, three quarters of it is just going to fade into oblivion. And then, but it, you have to work to get there. Yeah, You have to work to get there and the dancers have to be, you know, have to know who you are. You just can't throw someone in there and expect them to do something fantastic, you know? Right. right. Um, and unless you're bringing someone in to stage something they've already created on another company, at which point, you know what you're getting. Um, And, you know, for better or for worse, you know what you're getting, but this business and also, I mean, it seems to me there have to be these kind of choreographic workshops to throw someone, you know, especially Mm -hmm. someone who's younger onto a stage and say, okay, you can take 25 dancers and uh, here's a stage and there'll be 2,500 people in the hall. That's a lot, right? A lot. Right. Yeah. And just to maybe start early. Um, you know, at SAB, when they started doing the choreographic workshops for this, um, the students, the number of women who volunteered to do it was almost the same as the number of men. Mm-hmm. Right. And yet, once you go beyond that, it just seems to disappear. Right. I actually have a, you know, something, a reference for this as well, because uh, a ballet company last year was doing um, uh, dancer choreography. Like they had a moment where they were just doing outdoor things and any dancer at all could sign up for right. them. 
originally there were none until one one female dancer decided like she just couldn't ab abide by that on principle so she volunteered but that is already you're seeing the difference and again i think it speaks to i guess like yeah the way that you're trained once you're in the company students you know you that hasn't been drilled into them yet that like this is your yeah. place this is your place um so i think that is very interesting that mm -hmm. maybe it would be 50 50 but then once you move into a company you kind of get this idea that that's not where women belong right and it is kind of interesting that Wielden, um, uh, the ones, you know, the more contemporary uh, ones at City Ballet, uh, have uh, the men have all, you know, gone on. They've made many ballets. They've had the opportunities. Not all the ballets are good by any means. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but the women from Melissa Barish, who's apparently still choreographing on the West Coast, but she left. And now the latest one to leave this uh, uh, this fall, oh, what is her name? She was a principal dancer. Laura Lovett. Laura Lovett. I mean, I was at her last performance, and my God, I didn't want her to get off stage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we love um, Lauren. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know why she didn't feel she couldn't... Um, keep doing something even in a small way, but continuously. Right. Right. You know, yeah. during her uh, career, because to, uh, for dancers to begin to develop a, you know, a system around themselves that enables them to choreograph um, dancer. They need dancers. They need um, music. They need uh, space. Right. All kinds of other, where are, that's difficult to do. They don't right. come with an organization around them. Right, right, right. Exactly. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about one of the trailblazers of this conversation, <laughs> Najinska. We're like, we're so excited to have talked to you about this. It's been such an intriguing conversation. We hope that all of our listeners will run and get your book. We'll be sure to share once it's out and available. Okay. Thank but you. We, yeah, definitely. We know a lot of our listeners are you know, we've got some bunheads out there, so they're going to really enjoy this and definitely enjoy your book as well. I expected you'd have some bunheads. We do. We do. We love them. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you, okay, Lynn. Well, thank you. It was really, you know, it was really a pleasure talking to you both. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.